Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to make sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that at the instant of our salvation, all sins are forgiven positionally, but when we sin in the course of our life, we are separated from God in terms of broken fellowship. That at that instant, the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is stifled in our lives as a result of sin, and all that we need to do is simply confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to him, and we are instantly forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. It is simply a reminder that Christ has already paid for those sins, but a recognition that that which we have done is a violation of God's standard. We are instantly restored to fellowship. God the Holy Spirit resumes his ongoing sanctifying ministry, and it is under his ministry that we are enabled to understand his word and to apply it in our lives. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we read in the scripture earlier, it is in the light of your word that we see light. Your word is that which enlightens our souls to the truths of reality. For reality is not what we experience or what our minds shape, but reality is defined by your word, it's defined by your thinking, and things are what they are because you have created all things to be what they are. As we come together, we come to submit ourselves to your authority, to the authority of your word, that as we sit here, we learn to think about you and to think about our lives in the context of what you have revealed to us. We learn about our sinfulness and we learn about your grace. We learn that Jesus Christ provided everything we need for salvation at the cross. We are overwhelmed by your grace because it provides everything for us. We recognize that our lives are lived in the midst of a conflict, an invisible war that goes on in the heavenlies, and that the only way we can be armed against it is through the truth of your word. So as we study your word today, we pray that 
we might be strengthened in our souls and that your word might become that firm armament that protects us against the strategies of the devil. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For several weeks we've been discussing this invisible war, the angelic conflict, we call it, the spiritual war, the angelic rebellion, or some of the other terms that have been used to describe this. We have learned that within this cosmic conflict that began with Satan's rebellion against God in eternity past and will finally culminate with his uh, assignment, with his destiny in the eternal lake of fire at the end of the millennial kingdom, that human history is lived out in the context of this unseen conflict. We're told in First Peter chapter 3 that Satan goes about like a roaring lion. Job in the Old Testament, the first book probably written in the Old Testament, begins with a revelation of this fact that Satan goes to and fro upon the earth. And so there is a target as it were, on the back of every single believer within this angelic conflict. Now, I always have to have a caveat here that that doesn't mean that Satan personally is targeting you because he's a creature just as we are. He is limited, even though his abilities go far beyond anything that we can do. He is still not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent, but he does have... Uh, millions of demons at his disposal who carry out his strategies upon the earth, and they include both direct and indirect attacks upon the human race. And so in the last few weeks, I've talked about these attacks, these assaults, to help us understand what is going on within uh, human history, that there are direct attacks where Satan or demons are directly involved in attacking individual human beings, and then there are indirect attacks that are, involve things such as the cosmic system and other things, demon influence, and we have studied those, those things or will study them in more detail as well in the coming weeks. Now, the first direct attack of Satan in history was an attack on Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. And remember in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God created man, he created man in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image, that man was created to rule over the planet. So he is placed in a position of authority over everything on the planet. He is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. He is God's representative. He is the image of God that is the representative of God designated as the king of the earth. It's very important to understand this. I'm going to go back a little bit in my introduction this morning to review some things because as I've gotten a little further into some things related to the temptation of Christ, which is the focal point this morning and next week, and then into some subsequent things, some earlier things sort of came into a focus in a way that uh, I didn't have quite before, nothing, nothing overpowering, but just a little fine-tuning. So there's this attack on Adam as the designated ruler of the planet in Genesis chapter 3. Now, when we stop and we analyze Satan's strategy and the way he approaches the human race at that time, 
Adam and Eve, and the way he chooses to attack Eve first rather than Adam indicates some interesting things. But the way in which he presents his attack on the woman is very interesting. Just open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3 for just a minute. We'll have to page our way through a lot of scriptures today since uh, the uh, overhead is not working. When Satan presented his temptation, this is the first temptation in history, when he presents this temptation, he says to the woman at the end of Genesis 3, verse 1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And in this attack, remember it has already been stated in the first part of that verse that the serpent is the most cunning, the most subtle, the uh, craftiest creature that God has made, indicating the one behind him who is Satan that there's some heavy implications here. You could probably sit and think and come up with all kinds of insights into the strategy of forming this question uh, the way he has. The way he has set up this question, it questions not only the message of God in Genesis chapter 2, it questions his motive Behind the question, it questions the mandate, the prohibition to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By stating this question the way he has, he doesn't have a frontal assault on the character, the integrity of God, but he is implying that, he is suggesting that there is something insufficient about God's provision. If we look back in Genesis chapter 2 and we read that what God has done in verse 15, God took the man, he hasn't created Eve yet, he takes the man and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. In other words, God's starting point is his sufficiency. He's given the man everything he needs. He's created perfect environment. He has supplied him with an abundance of food. He has given him a wide variety of fruit from the trees as well as uh, grain from the fields. He has given him a number of things. But the way the serpent addresses the issue is to imply that the provision of God is insufficient. And the focal point, whenever we think about provision of God, we're behind that lies the grace of God, his giving or provision of something in Scripture. Whenever you read Scripture and you talk and you read about God giving anything, what lies behind this concept of divine giving is always the concept of grace. So God has provided uh, everything, and the implication of Satan's challenge is that not enough. There's still more. There's something else you can get. Not only that, but but it's not really true. So he questions the integrity of God by saying that when he comes back in verse 4, he says to the woman, you won't die. That God was just wrong in that. And, and in verse 5 now, he questions God's motive that he's restricting something good so that man can't have it. In verse 5 he says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Now, we know what happens, that she eats from the fruit, and then she entices her husband, and he eats of the fruit, and we have what is called the fall of the human race into sin. Now, what's the result of that? The result of that, first of all, is that man loses his position as the king of the earth. Satan then has usurped that position, and he is given titles in Scripture such as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, 2, the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and the ruler of this world in John 12.31 and John 16.11. So what happens in this insidious temptation of the woman as a direct assault on the position of man over the kingdom, an assault on the provision of God in terms of his grace, and a questioning of God's integrity, especially in terms of his plan. So we could summarize it this way, that in this temptation, Satan first questions the sufficiency of the grace of God. His provision isn't really enough. He's withholding something good from you, and if you just operate independently of his authority, then you will have everything. This, of course, implies a question of the sufficiency of God's word. Has God actually told them enough? That's what sufficiency means. It means enough. doesn't mean that God tells them everything he could possibly tell them. God, as we know, is coming and regularly walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day, and there's ongoing instruction. But the issue is that what God has said, though it is not uh, comprehensive, it is sufficient. It doesn't, it doesn't include everything God could possibly tell them, but it includes enough information to where it is sufficient. So he questions the sufficiency of God's grace. He then questions the sufficiency of God's word. And what lies behind this is a question of the integrity of God's plan and questioning God's plan. So the result is, after the fall, that there is a warning by God, the announcement of judgment upon the man and the woman and, first of all, on the serpent. And that is the most significant statement made in Genesis 3:15 as God addresses the serpent he says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet and that those last two clauses there indicate or three clauses actually indicate the flow of human history this enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of the woman, the emphasis on the seed of the woman as the ultimate solution to the problem, and that there would be this uh, conflict between the two, and the result would be a bruising of the head of the seed of the woman, which we know refers to Christ. So this is the bruising of the head indicates a non-fatal wound, or excuse me, the bruising of the feet is a non-fatal wound, and the bruising of his head is fatal one. So what, what happens here is he says, He shall bruise your head, indicating the seed of the woman will fatally destroy the serpent, i.e. Satan, and there will be a bruising of, 
the seed of the woman, that that, imp- that refers to the cross, which was not a defeat of Jesus, but actually led to a defeat of the serpent. So this is a key to understanding the subsequent attacks of Satan in history, because Satan is attacking the seed of the woman. And we saw that last time in Genesis 6, the next direct assault, when Satan is seeking to destroy the purity of the seed of the woman so that there would not be a true humanity. There would be this infusion of some sort of non-human genetic material that led to uh, uh, that would lead to the inability to provide a savior who was true humanity, who in turn could uh, stand as the substitute for the human race. Now, as I pointed out last time, there are no more direct assaults by Satan on the human race in the Old Testament. There are numerous indirect assaults, but there are no more direct assaults in the Old Testament. The next time we see a direct attack of Satan in in the in in human history comes in the at the inception of the ministry of Jesus Christ when he is initi- when he is inaugurated into his public ministry and that comes in Matthew chapter 4. So turn with me now to Matthew chapter 4. What we will see in the temptations of Christ in Matthew chapter 4 is a reflection, a mirror image, as it were, of the temptation, the strategy in the garden. Remember, the garden attacks the sufficiency of God's word. It attacks the sufficiency, uh, I mean, the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's word, and the integrity of God's plan. That's the structure for the temptation of Christ by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Now, let's just pick up a little context. This is very important to have in our back, in our minds, two things. We're not going to get through everything today, trust me. First of all, there's the context of what happens in the flow of the life of Christ here, the baptism by John the Baptist, which comes in John, at the end of Matthew chapter 3 and then immediately the Holy Spirit leads the Lord into the wilderness, and that's followed by the temptation. That's our historical context, the context of what happens in the life of Christ. The other context has to do with understanding the plan of God in terms of the incarnation, not only in terms of salvation, but in terms of what the what Jesus Christ is doing in terms of demonstrating his qualifications to go to the cross and also providing a precedent for the spiritual life of the believer in the church age. So we have to look at that context. Otherwise, the implications of what's happening here uh, will not be as evident to us. And what's interesting is as we go through these corollary passages, you will see various things that are emphasized that draw a string, tie these things together, which help us to understand what is happening here. First of all, let's look at the background, what's happening right before Jesus goes into the wilderness. Look at John, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew 3, 13. Jesus is, comes from Galilee, which is where he has been living. He has living on Capernaum on the 
shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes from Galilee to John at the Jordan. John the Baptist has a mission as the last Old Testament prophet. It is his mission to announce that the Messiah has come, to announce that the kingdom that the Messiah is to bring is at hand, and the conditions necessary for Israel in light of the covenants that God has given them, the conditions that are required for them to see the kingdom inaugurated. And that is why his message has been, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, because they are not living in light of the grace provision of God. They're operating on religious legalism in terms of the doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they are, have left the path of truth and God's plan for them. And so they're being called back to change their orientation and to refocus on the grace of God. Now it's time for the Messiah to appear. The, the forerunner has appeared in view of Old Testament prophecy. He has announced that the Messiah is uh, about to come and the kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus comes to him at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now it's not the same baptism that John's been using. John's baptism was a baptism related to repentance. Jesus has nothing to repent of. He is sinless. So this is has another purpose, and one of the purposes for baptism is to indicate an inauguration into something new. It's an inauguration into something new. It has this significance all the way back in history for a number of different things. There were washings, uh, complete washings of the priest at the inception of his priestly ministry. In ancient Greek, you would have a group of... of uh, new Greek soldiers who would go through training to be a soldier, and then they would go through an initiatory rite where they would dip their spear into a bucket of pig's blood, and this would indicate that they were ready to go into battle. So this idea of baptism has the significance of showing initiation into something new. And that is what's happening here with Jesus' baptism. It is showing his initiation are showing the initiation of his public ministry. So Jesus comes to John, and John tries to prevent him because John knows who he is. Remember, they're cousins. John knows who he is and says, no, 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 you don't ba- I don't baptize you. You baptize me. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus answers in verse 15, permit it to be so for now, for, this, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, why is he saying that we fulfill all righteousness? Remember, the term righteousness has to do with conformity to a standard. What's the standard here? You have to conform to the standard, not not God's character here, but God's plan. God's plan has definite protocol and procedures to it, and that involves that there is a fulfillment of prophecy, that there is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry and his initiation by a prophet, for that fits the Old Testament pattern that the king is always under the authority of God, represented by God's prophet. And so you have Samuel anoint David, I mean, Samuel anoint Saul, Samuel anoint David, subsequent prophets anointed, uh, subsequent kings indicated that the monarchy in Israel was under the authority of God. So they have to fulfill this standard of God's plan. 
Now, remember, one of the issues of assault at the garden was a questioning of the integrity of God's plan. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go through here. So they have to fulfill God's plan and the integrity of God's plan. So so then uh, John allowed him, John baptizes him at the end of verse 15. Verse 16, we read, when he had been baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This is a great picture of the Trinity here. We have the Son coming out of the water. We see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove uh, lighting on him, and they heard a voice from heaven. If they had had their digital voice recorder out, they could have recorded the voice of God. They could have heard exactly and precisely what he said. This isn't something that is subjective. Christianity isn't a, a, a subjective religion based on how you feel about God or your impressions about God. It is grounded in external, objective, historical fact. And so there was historical, objective speaking of the voice of God. Everybody there heard the voice of God as he spoke. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there is this recognition, this authentication by God the Father of God the Son. Jesus Christ has three titles related to sonship. The first title is that he is the son of God. He is eternally the Son of God. He doesn't become the Son of God at any point in eternity past or at some point in in history. He is eternally the Son of God. This relates to his, uh, his deity. One of the things we must remember is in Hebrew idiom, the phrase Son of indicates some sort of uh, description or characteristic of somebody. It doesn't indicate biological derivation so that we we often talk in our language that if so-and-so is the son of something then we we think of uh, procreation and generation but that's not uh, true of Hebrew idiom you have phrases often they're not even translated this way in the English but you have phrases if someone is a fool they're called the son of a fool because they exhibit the characteristics of a fool if they are rebellious they're called the son of Belial if uh, they are uh, uh you have various other things. They're murderer. They're son of a murderer. So what is important to understand here is this phrase son of indicates that whatever comes after that is really the quality that is being emphasized. So when Jesus is called the son of God, what that is saying is that he is fully God. When he's called the son of man, the second title, that means that he is truly human. He is both 100% deity and 100% humanity. He is Deity that is not diminished. He doesn't give up anything or lose anything in the incarnation. He simply restricts the use of certain attributes in order to fulfill the plan of God in his life. And we'll look at that in just a minute. That's a very important doctrine called the doctrine of kenosis. So Jesus is authenticated here as the Son of God focuses on his deity. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because when we get into the temptation, the focal point of Satan's temptation is on Jesus 
deity. He wants him to rely on his deity to solve these problems. Look with me briefly by way of introduction at at verse 3 in the first temptation. When the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God. In the Greek, there's four different ways you can express an if clause. That's called a conditional clause. You can indicate that this means if, and we think it's probably true, if, and it's probably not true. If, and this is the true hypothetical, we're not sure, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then the last is if, I wish it would be be true, but it's not. Here we have a first-class condition which indicates that the speaker assumes the truthfulness of uh, of his proposition. If you are the Son of God, or if, and I know you are the Son of God, Satan knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was true deity. And so he is appealing to Jesus in hypostatic union, true humanity and true deity. He's, he's appealing to that to say, well, let's use your deity to solve this problem that you've got right now. He does the same thing when we come to verse 6. If you are the Son of God, once again, if you are the Son of God and you are, And then when we uh, come to the third uh, temptation, he does not use that same condition, but he is still appealing uh, to Jesus to uh, solve his problems without relying upon God. So that's that's kind of the background. So right here at verse 17, in terms of the context, there's the emphasis on Jesus as the Son of God. So his first title is that he's Son of God. second title is that he's Son of Man which goes back to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is a title, a title for the Messiah who will come and destroy the kingdoms of man and establish the kingdom of God. Hmm, what's John's message been? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the term Son of Man is eschatologically important because that's the context of the kingdom coming in. And then the third title is Son of David. Now, Son of Man and Son of David are titles that Jesus acquired once he's incarnate, once he's born into the human race, because both of those relate to his humanity. But the focal point here is on his deity, that he is uh, he is the Son of God. Now, to catch the significance of this whole whole temptation here, I want you to turn with me to two other passages in the New Testament that we will br- we review Briefly, it seems that this morning that's all we're going to get is a setup for our um, for looking at the three temptations, and we will get into those specifically next time. Okay, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. This is one of those crucial chapters in, in the Bible. You have several episodes, several events in the Bible that are so important, the creation, the fall, the flood, the call of Abraham, the whole Exodus event, the conquest, the uh, Davidic kingship, all of these are so crucial to understanding the flow of biblical narrative. But there are some key passages in the New Testament that are crucial to understand and to help us properly interpret what was going on in the life of Christ. That's what Paul is doing in many of his epistles is explaining the significance of what had happened at the cross and in the life of Christ. So here 
he uses Jesus as a picture of humility. Now, there's a key word you have to remember. Humility, let's understand what humility means. Most people have a hard time with this. For most people, humility has something to do with knuckling under, being driven over, turning yourself into some sort of uh, uh, milk toast, washcloth, something like that, where you're just uh, you're, you're just uh, to- totally taken advantage of. That's that, that's uh, being um, humiliated. It's not what humility is. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. Humility is recognition of proper authority over you and being properly oriented to that authority. Humility does not have to do with a certain personality type. It has to do with recognition that someone is rightly related to the authority over them. It is related to the concept of meekness. Meekness is just another form of authority orientation. We look at someone like Moses. Moses is described as the meekest man in the Old Testament. He is the most humble. Now, Moses was in charge of approximately 2 to 3 million people that he's taking through the desert for 40 years, and they were rebellious. And yet he is described as the most humble person in the Old Testament. That means he understood who he was, what his role was under the plan of God. He executed tremendous authority himself over the people and leadership. He was a very strong individual, strong personality, but he was properly oriented to the authority of God in his life. That's what humility is. And so the Apostle Paul is talking about Uh, humility describing its various characteristics in the first four verses of Philippians 2, and then he gives the ultimate illustration of it in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And we'll just briefly sort of go through this to orient your thinking. He gives a mandate at the beginning of verse 5 based on the Greek verb phroneo, meaning to think a certain way, have a certain mental attitude, have a certain mindset in you, which was, also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God. Now, this phrase is pregnant with meaning. The English word form is a translation of the Greek noun morphe, which indicates the, ascent, the essence of something. That's, that's a, a connotation it has in the Greek Greek language and in light of his uh, historical backgrounds related to philosophy and other thinking. The form of something is its internal essence. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, although he was in his essence uh, identical to God, he existed in the with the essence of God. He was he was in his person undiminished deity. He did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped after to be equal with God. In other words, in the process of the incarnation, when he would be giving or restricting certain attributes or giving up the use of certain attributes for a period of time, he didn't grab onto that and hold onto it. Don't take it away from me. I want to keep this. That is in contrast to what is happening in Genesis chapter 3. Satan is offering to the woman that if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. So she grasps after deity. She grabs for the fruit because that will make her like God. 
And that takes us back again to Isaiah chapter 14, 12 to 14, when uh, Lucifer, Halel ben Shahar, says, I want to be like God. I want to rise above the stars of the heaven. I want to rise above the clouds. I want to be like God, be the most high. Satan wanted to be like God. All of that lies in these two creatures that want to have deity. In contrast, you have the second person of the Trinity who is in his essence true true deity, undiminished deity. He already has that. But rather than grasping after it, he is willing to relinquish its usage for a while. He doesn't give it up because he's always he, he doesn't lose it ever. He always has the deity. He just he's just willing to limit the use of these divine attributes for a time. So he doesn't consider it literally something to be grasped after. Uh, the King James that considering robbery to be equal with God misses the point. It's the idea of grasping after something to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. In other words, what we'll see in Hebrews is he's willing to lower himself to the level of a creature. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And this word, again, emphasizes uh, the essence. He takes on the essence of a servant. That's related to humility, serving mankind. Here, the creator of mankind is going to serve mankind. He not, did not come to be served, but to seek and save that which was lost. And verse 7 goes on to say, and he came in the likeness of men. In other words, he came taking on the shape of man. He became true humanity. So you have what is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means uh, essence or substance. And here what we're talking about is that the essence of deity is joined with, with the essence of humanity. So that Jesus, who is eternally the second person of the Trinity, takes on, adds to his deity, true humanity. So he has undiminished deity. He doesn't diminish it at all. He just, for a while, is going to restrict the use of his attributes. Now, when we get into the next phrase, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's that key word. He humbled himself and became obedient. See, what is humility? It is being obedient to the plan of God. So what was a question in the Garden of Eden? The attack was on the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of his word, and the integrity of his plan. And so Satan and then the woman and the man, they question and challenge by their actions the integrity of God's plan. Jesus, in contrast, humbles himself, which is grace orientation and authority orientation, and becomes obedient to the plan of God, even the death on the cross. And what's the result? He becomes obedient, and in his humility to recognition of the proper sphere of authority over him, even though it costs him so much, in that act of obedience, 
It leads to his eternal exaltation and glorification. Verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The path to exaltation and glorification is orientation to the plan of God in his authority. When you're not oriented to the authority of God and you're operating on arrogance, then you think that leads to, to glorification and it leads to self-destruction. Now, when we get into this passage, if you get into the Greek, that phrase back there, consider it robbery, is a Greek word, kenosis. There's been a lot of debate over what that means. It's considered a major theological problem. Liberals came along and said, well, what it means is he gave up his deity. That's not true. He doesn't give up his deity. Others, more orthodox, have defined kenosis as the, the fact that the son limits, pay attention now, limits the independent use of his attributes. Now, you read that in John Walford's book, Jesus Christ Our Lord. You read that in any number of Orthodox theologians, and yet there's a problem with that definition. And the problem is the word independent. The reason is because as the second person of the Trinity, he never used his attributes independently of the Father. That's not the issue. The issue is, is Jesus in in his humanity going to be obedient to the plan of God and not rely on his divine attributes, his divine power, his own omnipotence and omniscience to solve problems in his humanity? Or is he going to live out, because his purpose in the incarnation is to live out his human life in dependence upon God, demonstrating that a human being, in contrast to Adam, a human being living his life in orientation to God's plan and in orientation to God's provision can live sufficiently and have happiness and meaning and significance in life, that he doesn't need to rely upon his deity to solve his problems. He can do it on the grace of God and on the word of God. And so what he's demonstrating, what he demonstrated in his life in the incarnation is that the word of God and the grace provision of God, and specifically that involves the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation, that this was sufficient to handle any problem. He did not need to rely on his deity to do it. A lot of people get that idea. Well, of course that wasn't a temptation for Jesus. He's God. Well, you've missed the whole point. The point of the temptation is that it's almost as if he had this this wall that he generates between his divine attributes and his human attributes so that he is willingly limiting access to his divine power, his divine omniscience, so that he is going to handle these problems from his humanity in total dependence upon God. This is what we see when we turn over to Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, our focal point is on verse uh, verse 10. But before we get there, I want to p- 
pick up a couple of things that are mentioned in verses 6 and following. This is a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. In Psalm 8, we have the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why is man significant? That's a question we often ask. What's significant about our lives? Well, when you understand the angelic conflict and all these things that are going on here, it shows you why man is significant. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Man is created lower than the angels without the abilities or capacities of the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this is specifically applied to Jesus Christ. Now, when is he crowned with glory and honor? He's crowned with glory and honor at the, uh, at the ascension and recognition of what he has done. He set and God sets him over the works of his hands, the latter part of verse 7, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that will come into play in actuality uh, at the second coming. So here we see those same themes of glorification and uh, the human race in relationship to the angels and the plan of God. The latter part of verse 8 says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. See, that doesn't happen until the second coming. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. That's where he's drawing the application that when he said back in verse 7, you made him a little lower than the angels, he's applying this to Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, true humanity. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. He's crowned with glory and honor at his ascension. That for uh, he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ became true humanity for the primary objective, the primary purpose of dying on the cross for us. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That is the primary mission that he had, was to go to the cross and taste death for us. And that word for taste isn't the idea like you have when you go through Kroger. They have all the little samples out, and you sample everything. Now, it's the idea of taking something and making it completely and totally assimilating something into your body. So it is a, he completely, totally experienced death as a substitute for everyone. And then verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, that is God the Father, to make the captain of their salvation, that is the word captain there really should be translated as sort of a pioneer or a forerunner. He is the pathfinder. He is setting a precedent in his spiritual life. The precedent Jesus is setting is he is modeling for us in his humanity how to live as God intended in light of the sufficiency of his grace, the sufficiency of his word, and the integrity of God's plan. So God the Father made the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, complete through sufferings. He took him through a process of adversity in order to exhibit what was going on in his soul, i.e. that he 
the Lord Jesus Christ was not relying upon his deity to solve his problems. He's relying on the provision of God. And you have that same provision. You have the same sufficient word of God. You have the same sufficient grace of God. There is the same uh, righteous plan of God that that is perfect in every single way. And if we learn what God has provided for us in terms of his grace provision, and if we learn his word and rely upon that and his plan, and we fit within that in terms of humility, then the ultimate result of that is our glorification and praise for us at the judgment seat of Christ. But when we try to solve our problems on our own in terms of our limited resources, our limited knowledge, when we reject the sufficiency of his grace and the sufficiency of his word, then the result may be temporal glorification, temporal stabilities, a measure of temporal happiness or pleasure, but there is no eternal glory to God. So Jesus sets that pattern and he establishes his credentials for this initially at the temptation. This is to establish his credentials at the beginning of his ministry and he passes that test. Now next time we'll come back, briefly review what we just covered, and then get into the three temptations because they directly relate to what happens in Genesis 3 and directly relate to what happens back with Satan's fall itself, and it demonstrates that Jesus in his humanity has real success only because he completely subordinates his will to the will of the Father. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded that it's not our will but your will. It's not our way but your way. And that even though we often can rationalize numerous self-protective strategies that seem to work for us, the only thing that has eternal viability is we, we completely subordinate our will to your plan when we recognize that your grace is sufficient, your word is sufficient, and your plan is perfect. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture says that God loved you in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He demonstrated that he loves you by sending his son to die, to pay the penalty for your sin so that by simply trusting in Christ, you can have eternal life. By believing that he died for you, by accepting that gift of eternal life from him, relying exclusively on Jesus alone, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would take the things that we've studied today, bring them back to our memory during the week, that we might mold them over, that they might be used by God the Holy Spirit to Strengthen us to mature us and to uh, continue to produce spiritual growth in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.